Father God, we thank you so much for how you're working in our church in many different ways. And God, we thank you how you're working in our, in our children's ministry here. God, we thank you for Matt and Liz um, at Broom. God, we thank you for sending them here to us, bringing them here to, to our church. God, we are a better church because of them. And God, we thank you for how you're using them in our, in our children's ministry and the lives of the, of the children of our church. And God, we pray that, uh, that you would be using them and giving them, uh, giving them fruit of their, of their service. God, we pray especially this week as they're going to be leaving for camp on Friday. Uh, God, we pray that this will be a good, uh, a good several days for them, a good camp for them. God, we pray that our children would, uh, would have some time to uh, have lots of fun with each other, get to know each other better, and, and, and those relationships would be strengthened. God, we pray that there will be uh, lots of time for them to um, interact with Matt and Liz and the other, other uh, adult leaders that will be uh, going with them. And, and again, God, you will be strengthening those relationships. God, we pray that you will be building trust among our, uh, among our kids and their leaders. And God, we pray that, uh, that it will be a really good time. But God, we also pray above that, uh, more than that, that this will be a, a time for them to, ex to experience you, Father, to, to see you in a, uh, in a big way. God, we pray that as they are uh, at camp, focused on nothing else, God, that this will be a, a, a weekend, a few days, God, where you are bringing people to yourself. God, we pray that you will be opening hearts to understand uh, the gospel, Father, to understand um, sin and a need for a Savior and to understand that you've given a Savior. God, we pray for those kids in our church that are, that are not yet trusting in you. God, we pray that, that, that perhaps this will be the time when, uh, when they do, that you'll be working that in them. God, we pray for, for much time uh, for discussions of those kind of things. God, we pray you be opening doors for, uh, for conversations about the gospel and about Jesus and about what you've done for us. God, we pray for those that are leading the camp. We pray for the, uh, for the, the music leaders and the camp director and the uh, different group leaders and the, and the camp pastor. And God, we pray that your word will be preached uh, with boldness and with, um, with confidence. God, we pray that it would be preached in a way that is understandable and relatable to, uh, to these kids. God, we also pray for Matt and Liz and for their, for their whole team. God, we thank you for these adults who have, who have given up time uh, out of their schedules, out of their lives. Many of them taking vacation days from work uh, to be able to attend uh, camp with the kids. God, we pray that it would be fruitful and, and beneficial to them also. God, we pray that they would be blessed by the time that they're, uh, that they're spending there. Uh, but, God, we pray that you would be using them in the lives of our kids. Um, again, God, you'd be building those relationships between the kids and the adults. God, we pray that they would have time to have fun together and, and do silly things together. Uh, but, God, we pray that you would give them serious times also. And we pray e even for the next several days, God, that you would be preparing these adults to, to go to camp, Father, that they would have confidence to explain the gospel um, to kids that, that, that might ask them. And, and, God, we pray that you would give them that opportunity that you'd be opening doors, opening um, opportunities for some serious conversations. And God, we pray that, uh, that distractions would be removed, that the focus would all be on, uh, on you and on what you've done. God, we pray you'd give them safety. They would travel to and from camp. Uh, safety, God, we pray that they would be safe while they're there. We pray there would be uh, no um, sicknesses. God, we pray that there would be no kids uh, that, that get homesick and and all, all those kind of things that, that go with taking a group of, of kids to camp. God, we pray this morning, even now, God, that you would empower Matt to preach to us. God, the same message that he's preaching to our kids week in and week out. God, we pray that that message will be clear to us this morning as well. That you'd be working here among us. That uh, perhaps even today, God, before, before camp starts, that there will be uh, a, a child or, or someone else that, that you would open up their heart to believe the gospel this morning. And God, we thank you so much for Jesus and pray these things in his name. Amen. Good morning, church. It's my great honor to be able to preach to you this morning out of Revelation 
chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 21. This section of Scripture, uh, as we have continued to, to kind of discuss, is, is, is weighty, it's heavy. And it does weigh heavily on us as we study and uh, prepare for the sermons. We are, we are brought to confront the, the end of things and some difficult passages because these are difficult times as we continue to study in the great tribulation that is to take place. And as a way of bringing us forward to today as we take a look at the sixth trumpet and the second woe, just want to remind us of the trumpets that have taken place, those that have come, those that we have, we have studied and, and, and have learned about in some previous weeks. The first trumpet that we, we have studied was hail and fire mixed with blood. It's from Revelation chapter 8. And that fell upon the earth and a third of the world's trees and all the green grass was burned up. The second trumpet was something like a huge mountain that was all ablaze, that was thrown into the sea. It's from Revelations 8.8. 8. And that causes a third of the sea to turn to blood, a third of the ships to sink, and a third of ocean life to die. And in these two first plagues, we see some parallels with some plagues that took place during God's judgment of Egypt as he was preparing to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. The third trumpet is like the second in that a great star blazing like a torch falls from the sky and falls onto the fresh water supply and poisons it. And we see that because of that, many people die because of the poisoned water. The fourth trumpet reduces the amount of light given to the earth as a third of the sun is struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them are darkened and a third of the day is without light and also a third of the night. Following the fourth trumpet, we, we receive the dire warnings given regarding the remaining trumpets and the accompanying woes. There are three woes. And John records for us an eagle flying through the air, crying in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to sound by the other three angels. So the remaining trumpets, trumpets five, six, and seven, are also known as the three woes. And Pastor Jake Beatty preached for us on the fifth trumpet. And in that trumpet, we saw the plague of locusts. But these are no ordinary locusts that simply devour grass and die off, like is what happened in previous plagues that God had brought upon the earth. Now these, these, these locusts are special in that they are demonic in nature and that they are released from the great abyss and led by a fallen angel. And they were given the power to torture mankind with scorpion-like stings from their tails, causing severe pain so that mankind would wish to die. And they were able to do so for a period of five months. And you may be saying, wow, that's, this is already some pretty heavy, pretty heavy things that are occurring. This is the building up to what God is going to do in judgment of mankind, in the judgment of sin of man, judgment of the world. And today, as we get to the sixth trumpet, we'll see the second woe, and it's heavy. It's hard for us to see passages where God is responsible for, for people dying. But I want us to remember today that God is not unjust in the judgment of mankind. I want us to see today that in the midst of all of this, as it seems chaotic, that not a single thing is happening outside of God's control. So please join me now as we look at our, our passage here in Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21. Scripture says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. I heard a voice Say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops 
was 200 million, I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. As we prepare to study this together, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Lord God, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would be with us now as we study. We pray that you would reveal truth to us. We pray, Lord, that even in the midst of these things that are troubling to us, that we would seek comfort from you. We ask and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So in my house right now, we have a new driver. A new driver. We have Carter, who has gotten his, his permit. We were able to conveniently drive two hours to a facility that had an open appointment. For those of you who have not experienced regional appointments at the DMV, they're awesome. So we were able to find one finally and drive up to Independence, Kentucky and take the permit test and pass. Now, why am I mentioning this in the midst of our discussion here in Revelation? It's because with driving, there are tons of warnings, right? We have talked about warnings. Pastor Josh spoke to us about the blue lights that we see, that those are warnings. Usually those mean you've already done something wrong. But those can be warnings. You can receive a warning. We, we know that we have seen warnings in Scripture given to us by our parents, right? And that's kind of what I'm thinking of and what I'm talking of is I'm talking about the ability for him to be able to drive and eventually be on his own driving his vehicle. We drove for the first time yesterday. He did fine. Everyone's fine. He had very minimal problems, but you can ask him. I talked incessantly as he was driving because I was providing input. I was warning. I was guiding. I had my hand on the wheel, right? Literally and figuratively. We did it together, right? And I'm going to continue to provide warnings, and I'm going to provide those warnings because I love him. Because once he is on his own, once he is released into the wilds of road driving in Louisville, I want him to be safe. I want other people to be safe. I want to try to impart wisdom to him about driving. The main thing that we talk about is that driving is not necessarily about your ability. It's about watching out for the other people, right? That's the number one thing. If you can watch out and kind of try to figure out what all the other squirrels behind the wheels are doing, then, then, then you can be somewhat safe in driving. But there are tons of warnings that come along with driving. And in order for him to be successful, in order for him to be safe, we need him to heed those warnings. And that's where we are at today in Scripture. Mankind has received warning after warning after warning after warning since the beginning of time. But mankind has not listened. And because mankind has not listened, we have judgments. So today we're going to walk through Revelation 9, 13 through 21. We're going to begin where Scripture begins with the angels. And I want us to see three things today as we look at this Scripture. I want us to see the angels, that they are released and yet restricted. I want us to look at mankind and see that they are receiving mercy and yet not repenting. And finally, I want us to see God and see that he is judging and yet just. 
So our passage begins with the sixth angel blowing a trumpet and John hearing the voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. This golden altar is the altar of incense. This golden altar was in the tent of meeting when they were traveling in the desert. The Israelites were traveling in the desert. It was in the tent of meeting. It would be later placed in the temple. It was positioned in the holy place directly in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant would be. Upon this golden altar, altar, God had commanded the priests to burn incense morning and evening. This, this incense that they were to burn would be symbolic of the prayers of the saints, and it would be a sweet fragrance that would rise up before God. Each year, the chief priests would take some of the blood of the, of the annual sin offering, and they would anoint the horns or the corners of the golden altar to purify it from the sins of the people. This golden altar is what John sees. If you look back in Revelation chapter 8, at the beginning of the trumpet judgments, John is watching as an angel offers incense on the altar along with the prayers of the saints. The difference here, as we get to Revelation, is that there's no longer a requirement for a priest to offer that incense because Jesus Christ has become our high priest. There is no longer a need for animal blood to be sacrificed and then, then touched to the horns of the golden altar to atone for the sins of the people because Christ did that once and for all on the cross. And additionally, Christ himself makes intercessions for us with the Father. And as we pray to God, we have direct access to God the Father through praying in Jesus' name. You may remember that when Christ was crucified, the veil in the temple was torn and it separated and opened the Holy of Holies and directly in front of that opened veil is this altar. It is this altar where John hears the voice. This voice that he is hearing coming from the four horns of the golden altar we're not explicitly told in Scripture here who this is, but I believe this is most likely that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself as he gives the command to release the four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates. I find it interesting and wonderful, frankly, that we're given details like this. We're given a name of a river. We have lots of questions about the end of, of things and how they will come about. And we obviously know that we don't know when or exactly how God is bring, gonna bring things about, but we are given that these four angels were bound at the great river Euphrates. So what is the significance of the river Euphrates, we might ask? Well, if we read in Genesis, we see that the Garden of Eden was located near the river Euphrates as the river Euphrates is, is listed or is discussed as it, it's right there in and around the garden where the Garden of Eden was. And we know that in the garden, that's where man sinned. The original sin for man happened right there in and around that area where the river Euphrates is. Later in scripture, we see the eastern boundary of the promised land is the great river Euphrates. It is possible that God has selected this area to end what he began in creation. We don't know the exact place. We don't know the exact time. But God has told us through his revelation to John that it will be around the river Euphrates that these angels are bound and they will be released. Let's move on to verse 15 and begin to look at these angels. So the four angels who were prepared for the day and the hour and the year were released to kill a third of the human race. I'm getting ready to read in verse 16 if you're following along. The number of mounted troops was 200 million and I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions 
And from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. This is a wild picture, right? If you remember from last week, our discussion about the locusts and the description that we were given of the locusts, these are unlike anything that we have seen, anything that we are used to seeing. And Scripture tells us, as we, as we look at these angels, we, we, we sometimes wonder whether these angels are angels of the Lord, meaning they are his angels, God's holy angels, or are they fallen angels or angels that fell with Satan. One thing that we do know is that Scripture tells us that by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And as we understand that, it helps for us to see that these angels, like all things, are created by God and are subject to him as are the other angelic hosts. So these four angels appear to be fallen angels. They appear to be angels that have been kept in chains, as Scripture says, for some particular reason. We're not told exactly why. If we look in Scripture, we do see other instances where four angels are mentioned. If we look back in Revelation just a little bit, we see that there are four angels that are holding back the winds from the earth. But those angels were not chained. Further back in Genesis, we, we, we see where there might be a reference to these angels also in other places in Jude and Second Peter, but to be honest, we don't have a direct connection. So we're not sure if these angels appear elsewhere in Scripture. But I do think that there is, there is evidence for us by them being bound in chains and them being prepared for this day and time for us to say that they were potentially angels that had fallen with Satan. We know that not all fallen angels are bound. Satan, along with some of his angels, are freely moving about the earth even today. Peter tells us to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour we see in reading of Job that Satan was going back and forth on the earth when he is called to give account to God. So we know that they're not all chained, but these four are specifically. These are permitted by God as we turn our attention now to what they're going to do. These are permitted by God to kill a third of mankind. What's most important for us to notice in, in this section of scripture is again that number one, they were created by God. That they were prepared by God for this exact moment in human history. Scripture tells us that the hour, the day, the month, the year, and location were all under God's control. These angels are not going to be able to do anything outside of what God allows. And when released, they will end up leading a massive army to kill the third of mankind. The number described, as we look in verses 16 through 19, is 200 million troops. And scripture specifically mentions them being on horseback. And the description of the horses is amazing. These horses have heads like lions, and proceeding from their mouth is fire and sulfur, and smoke, and their tails appear to be somewhat like a snake having a head that they can inflict injury with. And to give you some sort of idea as the size and scale of this army that is going to carry out this judgment against mankind, during the height of World War II, all of the troops that were involved in that conflict, there were 70 million troops, approximately, that were involved in that conflict. And this army is roughly three times that size. To further illustrate how large this army is that they're going to be leading against mankind, this army would be similar in size to the entire population of Brazil. Brazil has about 216 million people today. 
And this army would be just a bit smaller than the entire nation's population of Brazil. Now, this could be symbolic. This number could very well be symbolic as to just a really large army that was almost innumerable. Some of your translations may say uh, 10,000 times 10,000. Or it, it, may, or it may give you some estimate on, on number. But the thing that I look at is that John in verse 16 says, I heard their number. He could be referring to the sound of them, but then he could also simply be referring to the number, which he records for us. So this army would be massive. This army is described in terms that very similar to the locusts that we had that seem demonic or otherworldly. As we think about what it might look like for a horse to have a lion's head, that to me doesn't seem like anything that I've ever seen, right? And given that the abyss was opened previously when the locusts came out, I believe that it is entirely possible that these four angels are now leading demonic forces that they have gathered. Some commentators believe that this could also be modern warfare, meaning John seeing something like a stealth fighter or uh, an attack helicopter or something like that. But his description when he says like, he's describing animals. And I feel like this, the simplest, most straightforward reading and understanding for us is to believe that these are animals that are demonic. Just like the, the locust, as I mentioned, that were released previously, they have grotesque describing features. And just like the locusts, this judgment that is going to come is going to be carried out against mankind. If we, if we look back previously in the judgments, there was a judgment against the land, right? The green grass and the trees were burned up. There was judgment against the ocean and fresh water. There was judgment against the sky. This judgment is coming as a second judgment against mankind. That first woe, the woe of the locust. People were tortured with stings from the locust, but they were prevented from dying. That was a warning to repent. All of these have been warnings to repent. But here again, this will be the end for many. As the three plagues of the fire, smoke, and sulfur are going to kill a third of mankind. In this judgment, we see God Sovereign in all things. When speaking of the great tribulation period in Matthew 24, Jesus says that if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The number of people that we're talking about, if we just take a look at what, what it might look like for a fourth of mankind to be killed as were in the fourth seal or a third of mankind to be killed here as it is in the sixth, sixth trumpet. Folks, that's like four billion people. Just let that sink in. Four billion people. Statistics tell us that there will be approximately eight billion on the planet this November. And if time is allowed to continue on, we don't know what that number will look like, but as of right now, with how our planet is populated, that is an amazing number of people that would perish. We see that in these things that God is still in control. Again, he is the one that created the angels. He is the one who's giving them the ability to do the killing, and it is he who will bring it to a close, and it's he who will preserve. Despite the destruction that God shows through this, we must remember that the opposite side of this is that God preserves two-thirds of mankind. But, as I said in my, my second point, that 
mankind, though receiving mercy, would yet not repent. Let's turn our attention now to verses 20 and 21 as we talk about mankind receiving mercy and not repenting. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Despite the harshness of the judgments that have been coming, mankind does not repent. Despite the warnings, mankind does not repent. And this is nothing new. If we look throughout scripture, we see mankind receiving warnings, mankind receiving direct direction from God, direct direction through the prophets. They had the law. Later, they had Jesus Christ himself and his teaching. They had the teaching of the apostles all along the way. We see mankind hearing and not repenting. Some specific things that are listed here that mankind does not repent of is works of their hand. That would be things that are conceived of, evil conceived of and done by man. They do not repent of the worshiping of demons and idols. These things that we often look at and say, who would bow down to a golden calf, right? But yet we look forward to our Merrill Lynch retirement statement with anxiousness. Right? We have idols among us. We have things that we place before God. All of us have things that we struggle with that we place in greater importance in our life than God. It says that they did not repent of their murders. I don't know if you guys watch the news at all. It's amazing to me how we can have something like Roe versus Wade overturned and people so angry about the fact that children's lives would be saved that you have people saying that they would get pregnant just to have an abortion. Tell me that we are not proud of our murders. Tell me that the people that we see pushing elderly people into the way of trains in subways in New York are not proud of their murders. What we're hearing here in Revelation is not far removed from what is taking place today. The fourth thing, there's sorceries. When we see sorceries, we may be thinking of some guy in a cloak with a glass ball and whatever. That's not exactly what I think is implied here. The, the Greek word is the base word for pharmaceuticals or pharmacy. And when we think about that being the word that's translated here, sorceries, but it's also used for pharmacy, I want you to think of drug use, potentially used in conjunction with the worship of demons and idols, potentially the thing that is conceived evil by our hands, the thing that makes it okay for us to commit murders, something that we'll kill for, and as in we'll see in the next two, things that will potentially drive us to sexual immorality and theft. Drug use was common in the pagan world in biblical times. It's common today. We constantly hear on the news about how drugs are flowing across our border, how people are overdosing, dying of fentanyl. Drug use is rampant. And it's been legalized, glorified, and turned into something that we make money on. Companies profiting people actually able to invest in those companies that are selling poison. Sexual immoralities, they do not repent of. Again, with the worship of idols, often there were sexual practices involved in the worship of idols. Certainly, 
those that would be in the Old Testament, we, we read, we know that there were temple prostitutes and things like that. I'm not going to go into that in, in any depth this morning, but I just want us to make sure that we understand that people were unrepentant. And finally, their thefts. When I was thinking about their thefts, I, 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 I thought honestly about how, how frequently it is now we see cell phone footage that gets posted online of people going in to a Target or a Kohl's or something like that, grabbing a duffel bag, filling it with items, and then strolling out the front door. They're proud of that. There's people who cheer that on as they participate. Doesn't this sound like our world today? Don't these things sound like America in 2022? Now, I'm not saying that today is so close to the end times because I don't know the date or time. I'm just saying that if we're looking at the signs, mankind is already engaged in these activities that it says in the end times man will be engaged in. We are already doing the things that Christ says that he is going to judge. And our world is unrepentant. Paul writes to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter five, he gives us a similar list. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And by evident, we mean that they're aware, all of us are aware of these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the warning. Notice the warning. I'm standing here today more than a thousand years after that was written, and Paul was writing to people in his day, warning them. We have been getting these warnings all along the way, and people remain unrepentant. What have we done with these warnings? Well, by and large, our world has remained disobedient and rebellious. We have followed the mistakes of the Israelites. We follow the mistakes of many that have come before us, and in their times of rebellion, we have sought after the things that seemed right in our own eyes. We have to know that there is coming a day when the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men who by their own unrighteousness are suppressing the truth of God. Mankind will simply not be able to claim ignorance because scripture has told them, creation has told them, the prophets have told them. What can be known about God has been made plain to mankind through creation. God has shown his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, since the creation of the world. All mankind is therefore without excuse. Yet, people refuse to honor God or give thanks to him. And as a result, their thinking becomes futile. Their foolish, foolish hearts are darkened. And claiming to be wise, they become fools as they exchange the glory of the immortal God for the worship of idols and the pursuit of possessions and pleasure. We have to see that God is going to give them up to the lust of their heart, the impurity of their desires, to the dishonoring of their bodies and themselves because they've exchanged the truth about God for the lie of the devil. And they have worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And since they do not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to do the things that ought not be done. And they'll be filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. 
envy and strife and deceit, maliciousness, their gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and I could go on, but I need a breath. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This was true of the people in Paul's day. My friends, it is true of us today. It is true of our world today. This indictment against sinful and unrepentant world is so true. And it should be condemning. We should feel the weight. I started with feeling the weight of studying Scripture one of the things that I've, I've been, been thinking about is that it is good for us to feel the weight. It is good for us to feel the heaviness. Because if we remove the weight, if we remove the heaviness, we also remove the benefit. Because it is that weight that grows us. It is that weight that challenges us. It is the weight that causes us to grow in strength. Our world has been receiving warnings, and our world has been receiving mercy, yet it remains unrepentant. So the third thing that we're going to look at is God judging and being just. The great difficulty that some have with passages like this in Scripture is that they don't understand how God could be just in forgiving the sins of some while judging the sins of others. We try to use our human minds to equate our righteousness by comparing ourselves to someone else. And that is not what Scripture tells us ought to be done. We are to compare ourselves with the holiness of Jesus Christ. He who is without sin... When we do that, we suddenly realize we are woefully inept and sinful and fully deserving of judgment. To help us illustrate this ability for God to judge, I want us to take a look at a quick example provided by John MacArthur. He says, imagine you're a judge and your job is to uphold and execute the law. It's the only standard you must adhere to, and you must do it unflinchingly. One day, a man stands before you, a vile, wicked murderer. The evidence against him is ironclad, and there's no doubt about his guilt, and he evenly admits it, even openly admits it. He confesses what he did and says he is very sorry, and then he asks you to forgive him. And in spite of what the law says, in spite of your responsibility to dispatch justice, you grant him complete forgiveness and you let him walk free. We'd be certainly horrified if human judges operated this way. But this is exactly what our judge has done. In spite of the clear standard of his law and in spite of the overwhelming evidence of our sin and corruption, he sweeps aside our crimes, washes away our guilt, and sets us free from the due penalty of our sin. How can he do that and uphold his own holy law? I would tell you today, the only way that that can happen, the only way that that's possible, the only way that that is just is that the penalty for our sins be paid in full. That the penalty for our crimes be paid in full. And friends, that's exactly what Christ did for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin debt, the penalty for that sin, has been paid in full by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he no longer counts our trespasses against us. That is how God can look at us and not punish us. It is not because of what we have done. 
It is because of what his sin, or what Christ did with our sin on the cross. Our sin debt had to be paid, and that is what Christ did. And that is the only hope of mankind. Verse 17 in that, that same chapter in 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, there's comfort and there is a commission in this passage. Comfort in the truth that we have been reconciled to God through Jesus. We've been made right. Our sins have been forgiven. And a commission in that we have been entrusted with this same message of reconciliation that we are to share and to tell others about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and to be living ambassadors for Christ, appealing to the lost world to repent of their sin, to believe in Christ Jesus so that they may know the joy of forgiveness, so that they would heed the warnings that they have been given in Scripture, and so that they would not face the judgment of God. I started with my story about Carter driving, right, and getting, getting his permit, And eventually, he'll be released, right, to drive. He'll be restricted, but he'll be released to drive and be restricted. And I'm going to continue to warn him. And I hope that as he's driving, if he's riding with friends, that he's also providing some warnings to them, if they're not driving well. I hope that he is strong enough to stand up to his friends if they're encouraging him to engage in things that he ought not be doing. It is my, my hope and prayer that those things happen. I don't want him to be given warnings and unheeding them. I don't want him to be reckless. I don't want him to live his life spurning the mercy and grace of God. But as we read in Scripture, we see that that's not the way that many live. In our call to worship, or actually our, our Scripture reading this morning, we saw in Second Thessalonians that there are those who will hear the warnings. They will hear the message. They will go through these judgments and yet they will continue to reject the call to repentance and reconciliation with God. See, they're, they're still under condemnation. They're still under the penalty of their sins. And therefore, they're under the just judgment of God. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's what it says in 2 Thessalonians. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God will send them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. Today, my call to you, the call to us from Scripture is to believe the truth of God's Word. Be reconciled to God today. Place your faith in Christ Jesus 
and heed the repeated warnings that we have been given in Scripture. Believe, do not reject the gospel, and thus harden your heart. Today is a day of salvation, for we know that the return of the Lord will bring with it judgment, and the righteous judgment of God will cause the death of many. There's a young lady who we saw post a message on Facebook here recently, and she grew up in church, and her family was was regular attenders in church, and I believe there was a point in time in her life where she professed faith in Jesus Christ. And as she posted about how she was no longer believing and no longer uh, attending church and no longer had any desire for that, she said that she supposedly felt free and out from underneath of the burden. You see, she's, she's like many who have believed what is false. She's believed the lie of the world that she's gonna find happiness elsewhere. She's hardening her heart. And my fear for her and the millions and millions like her is that they will face the righteous judgment of God because of their failure to believe the truth. These are heavy passages, as I said, but it's important for us to remember a few things as we close. First, God is in control. God is sovereign. None of these things occur. None of these judgments are occurring outside of God's control. God has set the day and the time and the location for all of these things, not all of which we know, but we can trust in him because he is trustworthy. He has proven that time and time again. The most important thing, and I say this continually, every time I talk about revelation with someone, every time we talk about what's going to occur in the end time, I don't care what your timeline is, I care what you did with him. What do you do with Jesus Christ? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Have you placed your faith and trust in him? If you've done that, none of this is going to prevent you from being with him. None of the judgments, not even death, will separate you from the love that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And to be absent from this body is to be home with God in heaven. So I ask you today, if you are here and you are not believing, you're not trusting in the truth, you do not know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, why would you ignore the warning? Why would you stroll out of here today knowing that you're not right with God. Get right with him today. Believe upon Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even in this judgment and and how how terrible and, and scary it would be to see an army of 200 million riding out, as we've seen here in this judgment, the sixth trumpet judgment, second woe. Lord, we, we, we know that we can trust you. We know, Lord, that our only hope is in you. So I pray now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be working in hearts and that you would bring the lost to salvation, that you would bring them to the truth and that they would love you more than anything. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.